Hello, I'm Brad Riley, and you're listening to Forming the Spirit Within, a podcast where you'll find such things as in-depth Bible studies, some classes I teach on a variety of spiritual matters, as well as some conversations I want to have with you and others along the way, all of which I hope will inspire you to a deeper life in Jesus Christ. In his second Corinthian letter, St. Paul the Apostle described our lives as a process of transformation that comes to us by looking full into the face of Jesus. And as we behold His glory, we are transformed into His glorious likeness in ever-increasing measure. What an amazing thought, that we can be transformed into the very glory of Jesus. That is my prayer for you, that in some small way this podcast will help you in your transformation from glory into even greater glory, as Christ forms His Spirit within you. I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast and not only listen, but join in on the conversation with a question or a comment. Thanks so much for listening, and may the Lord be with you. Well, good morning, you brave souls coming out in 22 degrees and snow. It is a pretty snow, and it's it's pretty because it's on the ground and not on the roads. So I like snow when it's on the ground and not on the roads. But uh, the roads weren't bad, so thank you for braving things. I didn't have a chance to, to call anything off, and honestly, I didn't want to. I just hate to cancel two weeks in a row. I hate to cancel at all, but... Good to see you brave souls out today on this cold morning. It is it is indeed cold, though. It could be worse. We could have like a 40, 50 mile an hour wind making it. Last week it was just sub-zero, you know, so I didn't want, to, want you to get out then. But thank you for coming today. We have the conclusion of our first letter. The, oh, hey, Pat and Linda's here. Good to see you guys. Come in. Come in and join us. Wow. Thank you for getting out today. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Very important part of the, of the process here this morning. This is the conclusion of the letter, the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonian church. And uh, he has some kind of summation remarks. And he's actually saving, I think, the best for last. He's kind of summing up everything he's talked to them about in a, in a sense. And he begins this session, we're going, to, we're going to look at verses 12 through 28, which will end the book. And he be, I wrote four different Greek words on the board. It, as, I began, as I was studying this chapter, I realized, thank you for that reminder, I realized, I was about underlining every word. There's so many words here. I said, what does that mean in the Greek? What does that mean in the Greek? What is that? And I realized this isn't, I could spend all afternoon just teaching you the Greek words in here, and I don't want to do that. But there's a couple that are important, so I've underlined them and put them down there. But let's, uh, let's offer a prayer. If you have your prayer card with you, let's say our prayer before the study of Scripture. Thank you. Um, let's ask the Lord to bless our time together. Let us pray. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live by thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you. So let me begin reading. I'm going to read this section, verse 12 through 28, and then we'll discuss. But we beseech you, brethren, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brethren, admonish the idlers, Encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophesying, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. 
May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I adjure you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brethren. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And thus ends the first letter of 1 Thessalonians. As I read through that, again, just another time, I've read it several times this week, I I was stopping and just saying, oh, I want to talk about that, oh, I want to talk about that. <laughs> There's a lot here I want to talk about this morning. But I want to begin with the sense that you catch, make sure you catch the sense of Paul's urgency. His urgency. He begins with this word, but we beseech you, brethren. I think it's important for us to note that he always calls them brethren. You know what brethren indicates? Brethren indicates that they are truly, it means brothers and sisters. Okay, it doesn't mean just brothers. It means it's we're not, family. It means we're family. We are children of God and we are brothers and sisters of one another. And he, he uses that term quite a few times, and I may have mentioned that throughout the study of the book. But he uses it several times right here in this passage. We beseech you. Well, this word beseech, we don't use that word in English very often. It's often used in old prayers. If you look through the Book of Common Prayer, uh, that's a very common word. We beseech you, O Lord. Um, what does it mean? Well, in my Bible it says ask, but it's, it's begging almost. Okay, so yours says ask. That's a good example, Dorothy, of why we can't just read the, the English. I think it's a Because it is more than, than ask. just asking. It is way more than just asking. Yeah, yeah. That's, when you urge. use the word beseech, that's okay. urge. Yours says urge. And which yeah. version do you have? Um, well, this is, <laughs> this is the New Living Translation. New Living Translation. And Dorothy, what was yours? Uh, New English. Okay, so New English says ask. New Living Translation says urge. My, NIV is the same thing. The NIV says ask. Okay. So my RSV says beseech. The Greek word here is arateo. I wrote it on the board, arateo. And here's what it means. It doesn't mean to just ask, and it doesn't even mean to just urge. Okay? But literally, if you look this up in the Greek, it meant to ask from a preferred position. So when they, when they heard him, when they heard the Apostle Paul writing them saying, I beseech you, they know, okay, this is the Apostle Paul asking us all that's about to follow carries a lot of weight. Because of his position. Mm -hmm. There is that point of preferred position. So I'm going to write that on here. From a preferred position. It's implied in there. There are other ways to speak if you just wanted to ask someone a common question. Okay, This is an urgent thing, and it's an important thing, and he's making that clear to them. And <clears throat> what is he asking them to do? He's going to talk in three ways here. He's going to speak to them and what they need to do as, uh, as, res as respects their elders. Okay, he calls them here, those who labor among you. Okay, those who labor among you in the Lord. There's a little phrase there, those who labor among you in the Lord. So he's going to talk about what they, how they need to treat their elders. How the, that means church elders, like presbyters, like pastors. Okay, let's get that into our mind, like pastors, deacons, the people who serve within the church who are over the people or who have responsibility over them in the Lord. Okay, And then he's also going to talk to them about how they should live in the church. And he's also going to talk to them about how they should treat others. Not only just live treating people within the church, but others too. So he begins with this word. He says, respect those who labor among you and are over you. Um, and there's two words here that are important in that sentence. And the first word is, is this word, this short little word, uh, ido, ido, in the Greek, okay? Ido. Mine says admonish you. Admonish, okay. This idea here is that they need to be aware and considerate. They need to be aware, okay? If we hear, it's, it's an active 
What is verbs? This? Okay, it's a very active. So I'm going to put that. I'm going to put be aware. Okay, and then I'm going to put the word. I'm going to in parentheses. I'm going to put active because I want to talk about active versus passive. Isn't that kind of like teaching too? Because it says it, who uh, those who admonish you. Okay, that and the at last of the sentence it says yeah. those who admonish you, and you could say those who are teaching, teaching you, who have authority over you, and guiding but, you through the scriptures and so on. Yeah, and on the beginning side, what is he asking us to do for those people? He's asking us to respect them. Okay, right. um, and that respect is a very active. I could respect somebody could say I could respect them because I didn't disrespect them. Well, that's a negative approach. Okay, that's a passive approach. Mm-hmm. Well, I respect that person, but I never ever do anything to show it. Yeah. Okay, see how negative that would sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But he, this word in the Greek is a very active word. Okay, it's 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 to be aware and know what you're doing. Uh, the NIV so, says that you hold him in the highest regard. There you go. That's a good kind of <clears throat> understanding, that you hold him in a very high regard. Now, it also says that you ad, uh, that are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, I want to look at this part, this word. This is kind of the hard word here. It's, it's, it, the, the way, I think the only way to pronounce it is proisthemi. Okay, this is an E sound. This, this, we would think in English it would be us. Proistemi, and this is the Greek word we find there where it says over you. Okay, in English it's written over you. Okay? okay. So I, I really parsed this sentence out and started looking at the sentence structure to figure out what word goes with what. What does it mean to be over someone? Well, it's, you're either on a higher uh, level socially in one respect, or that means that you're in a higher level. It could be education. Uh, it could be that you're you're holding an office. There, now there you go. Uh-huh. The last one you said there, Pat. Yeah, the office. The idea behind this word is presiding. Right. Okay, presiding over them. Mm-hmm. By so we're talking about respecting elders, people who have a position within the church, an elder, a deacon, somebody like that but also have authority. He wants to tie those two together. Many churches today, you know, this is 2,000 years ago. The church today is seen all over the world in so many different forms and types of governments and church governments and what we would fancy word is their ecclesiologies, okay, the different type of hierarchies in church. And some have zero hierarchy. There are literally some churches where there's nobody in charge, really. They have kind of a a moderator, if you will, and don't hear me making fun of anyone. I don't mean to. I'm not making fun of anyone, okay? But that's just the way they see it. They see everyone is completely on the same level, and nobody's really in charge. Somebody just moderates for them. And then others go to the other extreme where they have uh, complete control in the hands of only a few. Um, and then there are probably the majority of churches have an understanding that the Scripture teaches us that there is authority in God's church, and that that authority is in the offices of the elders. Okay, a good Which, example of that is the Catholic Church. Catholic Church is a is a very structured, exactly. the earliest churches, Catholic and Orthodox being the earliest structure. And if you look historically, that's the way they were organized. There were ruling elders. Okay, mm-hmm. the the word in the Greek was presbyter. Mm-hmm. We've talked about that word before, uh, and that simply literally means elder. And began to mean those who were set apart an elder. Okay, There are those who are over you. So we would call, in, in the Church of the Nazarene, we would say there are superintendents, which is a, another definition of the word episkopos. English, bish, the word bishop is an English word. Same, same office. We're saying there's a presiding officer, even over those of us who are elders. Okay, Now, it's very, very important to understand why he's calling everybody brethren here. Because even those who are over us, okay, are called to be part of the brethren. And it says we're to live in peace with each other also. Absolutely, absolutely. So we cannot, we cannot ever get into a, a mindset that says anyone's better than anyone else, okay? We're all the brethren, okay? There's even a church out there that took that for their name, Church of the Brethren, <laughs> my mother and father, uh, raised in that church. Um, the idea that we're all 
on the same level. But yet there are different offices. Okay, there are different offices. There's the clergy office, the lay, the, and there's the laity office. Okay, we all have different roles and different parts to play in the body of Christ. And so here is the elder, Saint Paul himself, the episcopos, the overseer, the bishop, if you will, talking to the people, saying, "Make sure that you respect." And be aware of and pay attention and obey those who are over you in the Lord. In other words, those who held, hold that clergy office in that sense. And then he goes on to say in verse 13 that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Okay, No other reason. We don't esteem our pastors just because they're pastors. We don't esteem our pastors because of their person or whether they're rich or whatever. We esteem them only because of their work. And what is their work? Is preaching the gospel or leading us? Shepherding is the best way to say it. The word pastor literally means to shepherd. The word pastor in its original language means to shepherd, okay? So that's their work, and that's why we esteem them, because they are taking on the responsibility of shepherding and guiding God's sheep, in other words. So he's speaking that, and be at peace among yourselves. Okay, so clearly the church, when, when, when pastors and people don't get along, there's not peace. That's for sure. When people and people don't get along, there's not peace. That's right. I'm not a farmer. I don't know this for a fact, but sheep are pretty docile animals. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're, they're just, you just don't see them usually fighting amongst themselves. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I'm not a sheep farmer. I don't know, but I, not like you do some animals, you know. Dogs and cats, for instance. <laughs> they're, they're very herd mentality. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, they just and they always have a leader. And they they ha- they will follow a leader somewhere. And Absolutely. They, and usually the leader will be a person. And the shepherd, in yeah, other words, shepherd. yeah. Uh-huh. And without a shepherd, what do we know about sheep? Oh, they're they'll, they'll just go there anywhere and every place. It's and been get themselves in trouble. It's been said that trouble. sheep will eat. <clears throat> sheep will eat until their stomach bursts. They don't know when to stop. They have that. They don't have that internal mechanism that tells them when to stop. Therefore, the shepherd nudges them out of the field and over here into the pen and different things. It's been said they'll just eat with their heads down all day. They'll just eat, 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 and they'll walk right off the cliff. And if the first one walks off the cliff, the others they'll will just keep going right off the cliff because they follow each other. Sheep are followers. Some of us that are doing that. <laughs> and some of us have done that. <laughs> so every sheep needs a shepherd, okay? And every shepherd needs a shepherd. And that's why Jesus right. said in John 10, as we studied back when we were in John, I am the good shepherd. Yeah. Jesus is our model. So I, I love this thought that in the church of Jesus Christ, whether you're clergy like me or laity like you, we're all sheep. I am called to be a shepherd, but yet at the same time, I have a shepherd just like you. It's the same one. It's Jesus Christ. He's the only true pastor. He's the only true shepherd. He's the only true bishop. He's the only true high priest, if you will. And so we all follow him. And together we make up the church, the body of Christ. We can't have a church without clergy. We can't have a church without laity. Okay, they're both necessary parts of the body of Christ. Now, see how he goes on. So he's going to talk to them about how they live amongst themselves. He says, we exhort you, brethren, See, I can't remember what that word was that I put up. The next one is to, uh, I just passed over that last word, and I do want to give you the definition. Because this is the word he uses here for esteem. Okay? Where it says esteem in verse 13, this is the word hegemoi, hegeomai, hegeomai. This is the esteem, and this means this means not to, to just esteem in word only, but it means to make this your chief thought. It means to be very important priority of importance. If you're going to esteem these shepherds, these ruling elders, you need to make it a priority is what this word tells us. To esteem with priority. So I guess I can't say enough here. He's Why is he writing this? Because already this little church that's only six months old, who he started out praising them, we, they realized they've got problems. Okay, in the, all throughout the New Testament, when you read about the issues and the problems that, that, that Paul or Peter or whoever's writing in the particular book, he's writing it because those are issues. Those are problems that they have, and they need to be reminded how to deal with them. 
And one of the problems that's inherent in every church, apparently, <laughs> is we need to learn how to get along. And we need to really be able to respect one another and respect our elders with high priority. Um, and so as you do that, exhort them. At, and he says, ex- we exhort you, brethren, admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, and be patient with them all. So what does that tell us? That in every congregation there are some who are idlers. Oh, yes. What's an idler? Just sit around and do nothing and just show up. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it, it, it makes us think that. If your car is on idle, what is your car doing? It's just, just kind of sitting there. It's not driving. It's not The engine's still running. It's just sitting there. Just, right? the old, just sitting there. The old uh, saying that 20% of the people in the church do 80% of the work. So here's another way we miss the meaning, though. This doesn't mean to those that are just doing nothing. No, I know. See, when we look it up in the Greek, this word, and I didn't put it on the board, it's uh, it's etaktos. It is means unruly. See, we wouldn't catch that necessarily from just reading this in English. How do you spell that? It's, uh, it's spelled A-T-A-K. A-T-A-K. T-O-S, yeah, T-O-S. And it literally means unruly. Not just people that are doing nothing. It's the ones that are causing problems. Out of order. It literally means out of order. The NIRA says disruptive. There you go. So now somebody in that is trying to say disruptive. Those who are disruptors, okay? And he says, encourage the faint heart. So besides admonishing the... Uh, so people, when people are out unruly or disruptive in the body of Christ, they need to be admonished which means they need to be held accountable. They need to be talked to about it. Always in love, of course. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. There are many in the congregation that are probably faint-hearted. What do we know about this church is that we know about all the early churches. They were facing great persecution. Their life was hard. They're already suffering. We're going to start chapter 2 next, I mean book 2 next week. And in book 2, the second Thessalonian letter, he just Paul starts right out talking about their suffering. They're suffering, and he needs to keep encouraging them. <clears throat> and we, we sometimes don't identify with that very well. Yes. It's almost impossible, it sounds to me, that they would continue with everything facing them or what, you know, who was persecuting them. Yeah. But they were new. Yeah, it had to be incredibly difficult for them to hold on to their faith. I mean, here they, they converted to a brand new faith that was completely upside down from the way their world was run. And their family and everyone, I'm sure, was persecuting them, making fun of them. They were probably losing jobs. They were probably being physically uh, assaulted. All kinds of problems because Christianity was not in favor in any civil society at this time. Okay, This is nearing the height of... This is written probably in the year 5051... This is considered, of all the books we have in the New Testament, we talked about this in our first overview, this is, this is the oldest of the New Testament books, okay? the New Testament letters, epistles. So it, it's written at a time when you know, 20, 30 years after Jesus has gone back into heaven, the churches are getting organized and spreading out across the world, and there's starting to be a lot of persecution. I mean, we're going to get within just a, within a decade of this letter, you've got guys like Nero, as a Roman emperor who starts greatly persecuting Christians. So we're, we can see it on the rise. Um, but he, he says that you need to help the weak, be patient with everyone, be patient with them all. So patience and helping, these are admonitions for all of us in the church. He goes on in verse 15, see that none of you repays evil with evil. There is, uh, there is that, you know, the Old Testament said, uh, the Old Testament law said, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Jesus taught us to turn the other cheek. Okay, There is this idea that Christians do not repay evil with evil. We don't get revenge. We do not try to uh, even the score or anything like that. Do not repay evil for evil. But instead, always seek to do good to one another and to all. And I circle that little phrase, to all. Because some people think that the church, that these New Testament letters talk about just being, you know, it's, a, it's important how we treat those within the church. But that's not what Paul is saying here. 
He's saying to everyone. That means everyone, even your pagan friends, even your pagan family members. You need to be kind to everyone. Uh, Seek to do good to everyone. So he's about to start just kind of talking in verse 16. He's going to start just admonishing these these, uh, admonishments to, to do these things continually. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. Okay? The idea here is, uh, in verse 16, to rejoice is literally uh, an exclamation of being glad. Not just, not just okay with things, but you, Christians should be the most rejoicing, happiest people in the world. Amen. So when we walk around with dour faces and woe is me, it's, it's not the gospel. It's just not the gospel. We are supposed to be overcomers because no matter what happens, it says right here, it's God's will for us. So, you know, it, I, I want to tell a funny joke, but I don't know one. You know, I, I just, I, I want to, you know, I'm hearing some country and Western song where there's some joke about this guy that says, you know, my, my wife left me, my dog died, my house burnt down, my, you know, and, and uh, but, but in the end, you know, in the end, it's all good. It's all good because the reason it's all good is because we're Christians and it doesn't matter what happens to us in this world. If all those things happen, if a tornado takes everything away or, or wherever you live, a volcano or whatever, you know, it doesn't matter. We get cancer and we die. It doesn't matter. We we are, we're, we all of us, we think of all these tragedies and maladies as you know horrible things, and they are horrible. And we don't wish for them to happen, but we must get through our heads what Paul was trying to teach those first Christians there in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was that whatever happens, it is God's will for your life in Christ Jesus. If you're living in Christ Jesus, there is no get out of jail free card from all sufferment. And, you know, suffering in, in Christianity. We are expected to suffer. I mean, I don't want to suffer. I'm a wimp. Okay, I really <laughs> am. I don't suffer. I don't suffer well. I don't get sick well. I complain a lot. You can ask my wife. <laughs> I, I just complain a lot. I mean, she had to put up with me for three weeks in January with the flu. I, I complain. I'm, you know, I just, I'm, I'm terrible. At, at a patient, I'm a terrible patient. I shouldn't be because this is telling me I should have been rejoicing when I had the flu. Okay? I, I was not rejoicing when I had the flu. She'd been putting up with me for six months. <laughs> but I'm still striving. I'm still, I still want to do better. I, I, I'm going to catch myself. I want, so when I catch myself in a really complaining mood or something, you know, I, just, I want to hear Paul saying, rejoice always. Yeah. Give thanks yeah. always. You know, pray, pray without ceasing. You know, what, what does that mean, pray without ceasing? The little, the little word there means incessantly, constantly. And we've, we've talked about that in classes I've taught on prayer. Uh, I did, a, I did a, a workshop last week, no, two weeks ago, for the churches in Wellington, the church in Wellington, kind of a revival weekend. And one of the workshops I gave was on prayer. And I tried to boil down a lot of the things I taught in a six-week class to one hour, which is impossible to do. No. But the essence of what I tried to teach was this thought that God knows from before the foundation of the world all that will ever happen. And if anything bad ever happens to me, guess what? God knew it. Doesn't mean he determined it. He knew it. And he still saves me. And he still has a plan for my life. And even if I die from it, I win. Because I get heaven. Because I believe in Jesus, and I'm trying to serve Jesus Christ. That's our, that's our real goal. That's where we're headed. The problem with the church today is we're way too comfortable in this world. I, I question whether we really want heaven. Really, uh, sometimes, I really do, as, <clears throat> as comfortable as we are in this world. But you let great times of persecution come. If it happens to America, God bless America, I hope it doesn't. But if it does, as some predict it will, some try to prophesy that it will, if it does... See how comfortable we are. We may be singing long and for heaven again. Remember the, the Old Testament people of God. They were taken captivity 
taken away to Babylon, right? Yep. And what did they do while they were in Babylon? They were slaves, but they would gather together down by the river at night, and they would sing old songs, the Psalms, okay? And they would remember the days when Yahweh was with them. They knew they sinned, but they remembered the days when Yahweh was with them because things were not good for them, but they were still trying to, they had to relearn how to praise God in the midst of bad times. They have done that also when they were in Egypt? (coughs) Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, you know, it seems like God's people, (laughs) they never know what they've got till it's gone. I think there's no song about that in there. You don't yes. know what you got till it's gone. Yep. Uh, uh, that is, is that is that one of that song of Pave Paradise and put up a parking lot or something? Joni Mitchell. Yep. I'm, I'm kind of a pop, I'm kind of a pop music Watch theologian. Every word. <laughs> Go for it, bust it out. I'm a pop music theologian. I really am. Uh, so uh, they don't know what they got till it's gone, you know. And then when it's gone, oh boy, let's remember the good days. Let's try and praise God and. Sing and, and lament and things, but I'll miss you. If you'll miss me when I'm gone. <laughs> yeah. For he says, this is the will of God uh, for in Christ Jesus for you. And then he then he admonishes them, do not quench the spirit. He he tells them three things here: don't quench the spirit, don't despise prophesying. Instead of despising prophesying, he says, test everything, hold fast to what is good. But the third thing is then abstain from every form of evil. He's setting up verse 23. The Apostle Paul is teaching us how to be Christians. He's teaching us how to live holy lives. And the way we do that is to rejoice always, to pray unceasingly, just pray at all times. Let your heart be always in a spirit of prayer, no matter what is happening. Giving thanks, the prayer, you know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's from the book of Job. And Job lost everything. I mean, he was greatly persecuted. But yet in the midst of his persecution, he said, blessed be the Lord. You know, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So whatever happens, rejoice. And then he says, uh, don't quench the spirit. He said the third thing, abstain from every form of evil. So let's talk about quenching the spirit. What is Paul trying to get across to them? I mean, you and I really don't have, I mean, I have no power of the Holy Spirit. I can't quench the Holy Spirit in a sense that I, if there's a candle here, I could put this light out. And that's what the word is in the Greek. It's, a, it's about extinguishing a light, which in that case was a fire. Okay, like a campfire or a candle or something like that, an oil lamp. So I could extinguish it. I have the power over that fire, right? But I don't have any power over the Holy Spirit. So how would I quench the Holy Spirit? What's Paul talking about? If you've got a bad attitude and you're with a bunch of Christians and and you got several of them here up and really, you know, on fire, and then you have one very descending person, yes, it can quench the, the, the Holy Spirit even. So, I've seen, seen it happen in church. So maybe what Paul is saying to us here is we don't have the power to quench him, but we do have the power over how we respond exactly. in the presence of the Spirit. Yep. Yes. So if you don't want to add to that bad apple and make other people. Yeah. I'm not, I can't find the right words. I no, I, I know what you mean. I don't um, know what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> don't join the bad party. <laughs> don't add to it. Um, rejoice instead. Don't let others drag you down. Exactly. Stay with the Spirit. The Spirit of God is everywhere. One of my favorite prayers I've learned, uh, I taught this in that prayer class to the people at, um, it's, an old, it's an old ancient Orthodox prayer, and I love it because it's very teaching. It's very uh, edifying. It says this, if I can quote it, I read it every morning, but I think I can quote it. It says, O heavenly King, O comforter, Spirit of truth, who are everywhere present and filling all things. The treasury of good gifts and the giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every stain. Oh, good one. That's the prayer. Come and abide. But but it's acknowledging that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is everywhere. Everywhere. And the Holy Spirit is filling all things. I, I can't quench him. I can't tell him where to go, what to do, but I can certainly have power whether I will join him. Okay. And he's about to talk to us about how to do, how, how God's plan for us. Okay. 
God's plan for us is not to quench the Spirit. God's plan for us is to live in the Spirit, to live in the abundance of the Holy Spirit. Our life begins and ends by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Creation exists by the power of the Holy Spirit. God's breath animates everything that's alive. Plants, animals, people, everything that is living. Everything the psalmist says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Okay, So he's saying, test everything. Don't, don't, don't quench the spirit. Don't despise prophesying. I think we should spend a couple minutes on that. What does it mean to prophesy? In New Testament times, he's not saying, uh, don't... Uh, don't uh, how, how, let me see here. Don't uh, don't despise those who are trying to predict the future. Prophesying is not about in New Testament terms. Prophesying is not about predicting the future. It's not what it means. What it means is foretelling a revealed truth. So when somebody stands to 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 preach or to teach, and it's not always a clergyman, okay could be a, a layperson, who's somebody who is very spiritual, somebody who is a prophet, who's been given the anointing of God and the revelation of God to speak his truth. That can happen, okay? That, that's, that's prophesying. If I'm going to preach as my role as a preacher, then I want to prophesy. I want to preach God's truth, not my truth. I want to always, because here's the trouble with prophecy. We think of prophecy as predicting the future because the Old Testament prophets, we've been trained to think about every word they said was supposed to be fulfilled in this sense and in that sense, so it was like predicting, but we missed the point. What they were doing was foretelling the truth of God. When they were predicting this is going to happen to you, this woe is going to come, they were, hey, God had already revealed it to them. They were God's mouthpiece. Now, if we want to be prophets, guess what? You know what the the penalty is for false prophecy? Death. Okay, it was not a safe occupation. You better be sure it's the Lord's truth you're telling. Okay, so let us not all seek to be great prophets. Okay, I don't even want to be a prophet. Okay, but God's called me to preach and teach, but I, I humbly, oh my God, humbly hear me. I do not want to teach wrongly. I do not want to teach from a place of, of false prophecy. I will go so far as to say, you know, when I'm speaking to people of all different backgrounds and churches and theologies, I am not going to tell them that my theology is better than theirs. I'm not going to tell them that I'm right and they're wrong. I'm just going to tell them this is what I feel I believe. Maybe you're right. We'll figure it out when we get to heaven. Mm -hmm. But let's don't divide because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, does that make sense to you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. But so much of that prophecy back in the Old Testament has come true. Oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. Well, it has to. It has to come true because it's God's truth. Yeah. Yeah. So you it's know, still coming true today. It's still coming true today. God's truth will always come true. God's revealed truth will always have its way. Okay, Isaiah 55 says, My word will not go forth except that it always accomplishes what it's set out to do. So now, let's think of this. So he transitions then, and he's... After all these admonishments, admonitions, whatever the right word is there, in verse 23, he says, May the God of peace himself sanctify you wholly. And the word in my English is W-H-O-L-L-Y, not H-O-L-Y. Okay? We've already learned that the word sanctify means, you remember? To make holy. So he, he's saying, may the God of peace make you holy, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. And it, we could say entirely. Okay? Yes. Through and through is what your Bible says. Yes. The, the word here, well, I looked it up. The word here, we've learned about sanctify, the word hagiazo, uh, hagiasmos, you know, the idea of sanctification. But the word holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, is holoteles, holoteles. It's kind of a weird word. And it definitely means entire. There's no question about it. It means the whole thing. 
if we're going to, if let's say we, uh, this is a ridiculous example, but we have a, a bowl of wheat here and we're going to make those wheat, we're going to sanctify this wheat to the Lord. It means down to the last kernel, down to the last speck of dust off of that wheat. Entire, nothing left out. No part unconsecrated. The Apostle Paul is saying that's God's will for us. And he's saying, I'm praying for you. He, go, he says, "May that's his prayer. May this happen. May the God of peace. He wouldn't ask for it unless he knew God wanted to do it. And then he goes on to say, may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 is the key. He who calls you is faithful and he will do it. How do we become holy? Through sanctification. But how? How? Well, it's, Who does it? The Holy Spirit does. Absolutely. He does it all except one part I have to do. Yield. That's right. We have to yield. yield and, and, and Surrender. Right. Because our God will not force himself upon anyone because God is love. God will not force you to become holy. He will not force you to believe. Okay? He knows in his inscrutable uh, mind and, and knowledge, he knows who will believe and who won't. He's not going to force us to. So, same way with holiness. He won't force us. Just, he won't force us to believe. He won't force us to be holy. It's possible to believe in God and not rise to the level of holiness. It's possible, possible to be a believer in Jesus Christ and not rise to the level of entire holiness or entire sanctification. This is why this became a big deal. <laughs> This became a big deal back after the Protestant Reformation in the what's called the English Reformation and the teachings of John Wesley. John Wesley didn't discover this. He rediscovered this. Okay? Let me read to you from an old ancient church father. And I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you this idea of being entirely sanctified, this wholeness. You can find it in my notes here. Okay. This is from the 4th century. The, the Archbishop of Constantinople, his name was Gregory of Nyssa, N-Y-S-S-A, Gregory of Nyssa, St. Gregory of Nyssa. He says this, Therefore, this therefore is perfection in the Christian life, in my judgment, Gregory's opinion here, namely, the participation of one's soul, and speech, and activities in all the names by which Christ is signified so that the perfect holiness, according to the eulogy of Paul, he's talking about what we just wrote, his closing words of, of Thessalonians. According to the eulogy of Paul, is taken upon oneself in the whole body, soul, and spirit, continuously safeguarded, against being mixed with evil. <laughs> There's so much there, I just got to stop and talk to you about it for a minute here, okay? This is huge, guys. What even in the 4th century, what Gregory of Nyssa was saying was that God's desire, God's plan, and God's abilities are to make us perfectly holy, to not be mixed in any way with evil in our soul, our mind, and our bodies. And that's why Paul goes on to say here in his words, um, and may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, every chapter is always pointing towards the second coming of Jesus Christ. That was always forefront of their minds. Christ, and we, we want to be found holy when he comes. We want to be found righteous when he comes. Amen. Okay? So I, I just want to spend some of the closing moments here uh, that we have this morning. I'm, I'm going to just go jump, skip a little bit ahead and come back to it because that's where I want to end. He ends by saying, brethren, pray for us. Three times throughout this book, Paul has reminded them he's praying for them. And now he says, pray for us. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. We don't do that anymore, do we? They do in a church in Tabitha. They do. Mm -hmm. it's, it's actually being rediscovered in some places. 
Did now, the church ever do it? Uh, not, 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 not in my years. But, but it's, it's an ancient practice. Coronavirus. This, yeah. <laughs> Coronavirus. People are scared of all these viruses. But, but, but the point is, the point was not to, it didn't have to be a kiss. It could be an embrace. If you go to the Middle East customs, oftentimes it's an embrace to both sides with both arms, both shoulders, both sides. I used to have a Middle Eastern friend uh, that came here, and he would hug me that way and embrace me um, one cheek to cheek, both sides, you know. I mean, if you're going to catch their virus, you're going to catch it whether you shake their hand or do whatever, okay? Right. Where they breathe on you, sneeze on. But, but here's the point. The idea is that this holy greed, this is more than just, hey, hi, how are you? Okay? That we need to put our bodies into it. In, 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 in Oriental customs, it's bowing to the other person. Same thing. It's, it's the idea of being physical. Okay? That's where the handshake was invented. I don't even know who invented it, but the point is, is it's a physical gesture. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's just an arm on a shoulder. It's a physical gesture. Now, I really, really, really love churches and, and worship services where they take time out and, and greet each other. With, but, but I'm going to go a step further. We're kind of, you know, in my days when I was here, when ministers did that, it was usually about just tell somebody, hello, you're glad they came to church, blah, blah, blah. It's kind of the same thing, but not really. The idea in the ancient worship was to wish the other person the greetings of God and the peace of God. Okay, So they say, exchange with one another the peace of the Lord in some of the more liturgical churches. Let us exchange with one another the peace of the Lord. And so we say, peace be with you. And usually a handshake in today's culture. I've never been in one in my cultural times that ever did mostly kissing or anything like that. And, and that was never meant kissing on the lips, okay? It was not an affectionate kiss. It was a it was a brotherly type kiss, okay, on the side of the cheek. So that's what he says to them. This is part of that strengthening their faith by physical bonds. And he says, I adjure you by the Lord. Let this letter be read to all brethren. I adjure you. That's a very strong word, okay? This letter needs to be read. In, NIV says, I charge you. Yeah, he's ordering them. Yeah, Get this Get this letter read. This is important. It must be read in the churches. Okay? And uh, why is it so important? Paul is, Paul is ending this letter with this idea of holiness. He began this letter with the idea of holiness. In, in, chapter, in chapter 2, he talked about being holy and blameless. In chapter Five, he talks about being holy and blameless. And, and I want to spend just a few minutes. We've got a little time left here. I want to spend a little few minutes on what it means, because I think we get confused by this really easily. What does it mean to be blameless? What does it really mean to be blameless? Our goal is to be presented in this world. Our goal is to be presented to Jesus Christ when he comes again, if we're alive at the second coming. The word for forgiven has got to be Okay. The quickest way to say it's blameless. Okay. But if we're not alive at the second coming, mm-hmm. if we die, that's our that's our second coming. You realize that? Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm not saying that Jesus won't come. When he comes again, he comes with all of his saints with him. Mm-hmm. Okay? And angels that scripture teaches us. And we'll read more about that in Second Thessalonians. But if we die tonight, he came for us. We die. We see so here's our goal is at that point, whether it's our death or whether it's in his second coming, our goal is to be presented before him that our body, our soul, our body, and our spirit be presented blameless. Amen. Blameless. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Interestingly, the word there's no Greek here for the word sound. Our English writers, do yours say sound and blameless? Do some of yours say there? In, that's in verse... Verse 23. Soul and body be kept blameless. So the the RSV English writer here inserted the word sound and blameless. Okay? Because he's trying to codify this or edify it. That word's not in the Greek. There's nothing there for the word sound. It's just blameless. Okay? So what does it mean to be blameless, though? What does that really mean? Forgiven. Well, forgiven is, and forgiven is where we begin. Exactly. That's where we begin in God's grace. And, of course, Jesus, Jesus tells us we have to forgive others or we're not going to be forgiven ultimately, okay? 
But what does it mean to be blameless? I would think that you would, you had no sin that you hadn't already presented to God and been forgiven for. You, you have not sinned since. Okay. But you have presented body, soul, and mind to the, the uh, infilling of the Holy Spirit. Okay. So I hear the word sin being used here this morning. You, you feel that this idea of being presented blameless has something to do with not sinning. Is that, is that right. what I'm hearing? Yeah. Okay, something to do with not sinning. And this troubles many people because we can't humanly figure out how can we not sin. I mean, it's just human sin. So I, this is difficult theology, okay? And I, and I don't want to split hairs with you this morning, but here's what I want you to know. I, th- this is what I truly believe. And I believe what John Wesley was trying to recover in the early church's teaching. You heard the words of Gregory entirely. Not just most of us, but entirely. That it is possible for God for, for me to be so surrendered to God and his Holy Spirit and his holy will for me that he would envelop every fiber of my being, every emotion of my body, and every thought of my body and every impulse of my body to be totally committed to him and surrendered to his glory. Now, I believe that's possible, but I also believe it's going to take me a lifetime to get there. Exactly. Because I know myself, okay? And I really want to. So now there's a difference between my desire to be that holy and my process of getting that holy. And I think what we've always taught in in the Church of the Nazarene anyway, in holiness Wesleyan circles, is this idea of sanctification, of entire sanctification being a crisis moment where we have to surrender. We have to make a decision. Okay? We have to yield ourselves. But also a process that's going to take my lifetime of surrender. I can't just surrender once. I need to surrender daily. Exactly. I yes. need to surrender moment by moment. Mm-hmm. Because I'm going to be tempted in the next moment of something else, some evil dart that the Satan's going to throw at me. So don't hear me saying that sanctification is this glorious thing that you just magically get because you made a decision. It, it takes your whole being being put into that decision. And that's where we cooperate with God. Mm-hmm. That's where we, there's a synergism here. I like the word synergism. We cooperate with God. We yield, he works. We yield, he works. His my, holiness into us as my, we ye- continue to yield. My grandma Patterson put it as simply as I, I can say it. And that, she said, is to keep prayed up. Mm. And that, that means... Obviously, like he's saying, pray without ceasing. Keeping exactly. prayed up, I think some of the old saints would say, keep prayed up, means pray about everything. Right. And always be, I'm going to use a word here that you might might not like. Always confess. Yep. If we think we don't need to confess, we have fooled ourselves. That's for sure. If we think our theology means we cannot sin, okay, we're wrong. Okay. It means by God, there's a world of difference. Let me, let me phrase this. This was written by Richard Taylor, who was one of our uh, theologians who passed away a few years ago. He wrote a book called A Right Conception of Sin. It's a good book. Y'all should read it sometime. It's required reading for ministerial students. But in that book, he said this. He said, God would rather have a bumbling idiot who surrendered to him always than a intellectual that thinks he can knows it all and doesn't have to surrender anymore because he already did. And I'm paraphrasing him, obviously, but here's the part I think I can quote. He said, he gave a kind of an example. He said, there's a world of difference between this. It's, it's one thing to say, I'm saved and I'm sanctified. And hallelujah, I'm able not to sin. And somebody saying, I'm saved and I'm sanctified, hallelujah, I'm not able to sin. I've, I've seen Pretty fine people. line there, but it makes all the difference in the world. Go ahead. I've heard some Nazarene people that think that once they're saved and everything, that they do not sin anymore. 
It was preached that way also in the Free Methodist Church. Yeah. A lot of a lot of the holiness churches got that wrong. I'm sorry, they did. That is wrong. It's and, and, totally wrong. And I'm not saying I'm not saying they intended to get it wrong. Okay, I'm not saying that. Uh, this is what happens if we're not constantly studying, constantly in the Word, constantly yielding, right. and looking at the even like I did the the testimony of the early church fathers. The reality is, as long as I am human, I have the potential to sin. I'm not a robot. I'm not a robot. There's the potential for me to sin. Well, we don't. But we cannot totally get rid of that carnality. Well, within us. There's debate about that, but here's here's my point. What Paul's asking us to do here is to be blameless. Right. He's saying, I think Paul is making an equation here between perfect and blameless. Mm-hmm. God created us to be perfect. He created us to be blameless. He didn't create us to be gods like mm-hmm. him. Okay, we have a free human will, and when we surrender that will to Him, He so gives us His indwelling presence of His Holy Spirit that we can, by His grace, by His indwelling, abiding grace, choose not to sin. And by this, by so we have to define what we mean by sin. And Wesley said to sin willfully. You know, we may sin every day, and and some I know there are some. Nazarene Wesleyan type theologians that have a problem with those prayers that say uh, sin in thought, word, and deed. Well, you know, I'm not afraid of that prayer because the truth is in my humanity, I might sin in thought, word, and deed. I'm going to confess all my my shortcomings. But that doesn't mean I can't live prayed up and believing in the power of the Holy Spirit to keep me surrendered. But he won't keep me surrendered if I don't keep myself on his altar. Exactly. Okay? So I'm the li- I need to become the living sacrifice. I need to place myself on the altar of God every day of my life, every moment of my life. That's what the believing. Word says we're supposed to do that daily. Yeah, Mark. Can we liken it to Jesus' uh, parable about the ten virgins? Yeah, I think some we can. Were, some were unwise; they let their oil run out. But some were ready. Waiting, they know they didn't know. Brought they, extra oil with them. Yes, their lamp was burning. Mm-hmm. They were prepared. They were prayed up, prepared, <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> I, I mean, that's what that's a first thought. That's a good, that's a good analogy. Mind. No, it's a good yeah. analogy because in both those examples, both all of the ten virgins are saved ultimately. Okay, I, I really believe that. They mm-hmm. all had okay. lights burning at that time. But the 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 five. Go back to what Jesus is teaching there. The five, okay, they asked for what? Give, give me some of yours. Yeah, let, me, let me have some of yours. And they said, I, I can't do that. Okay. If I do, then I won't be for God wants me to be either. That's right. Why did he say they're both? They're well, both go saved. turn turn to that passage in, in Matthew. I don't have my uh, that scripture with me, but turn to it. Let's look at it. I don't know where it is. Oh, <laughs> somebody look it up. It's Matthew uh, <laughs> chapter... 20-something? I, I don't have perfect recall of what it is. But you brought it up well, and I, I think it's a great point. Here's what, here's what I mean. I, I want to see that uh, see that again if you can find it there, if somebody can find it. They would have been. I don't have exactly. Matthew 25, 1 through 5. There you go, the man with the computer. What is it? Matthew 25, 1 through 5. You got this. Which version do you have here? NIV. The silly, well, this is MSG, so the silly. <coughs> oh, okay. Well, I'm in Luke. What am I doing? Matthew 25, there you go, you're almost there. We're going to look at it real quick because I think it's a good analogy. Here we go. Parable of the Ten Virgins. Let's look at it here. Okay. At the time, this is Matthew chapter 25. At the time, the kingdom of heaven... At that time, meaning he's talking about in in the end time. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Okay? Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. And they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry came. The cry rang out. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. 
the foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us, and you instead go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later, the others also came. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. That's a sobering parable, very sobering parable, okay? In the beginning of this parable, they're all saved. They're all in the kingdom. You with me? Yep. That's what I mean by saying they're all saved. Okay, this isn't five believers and five non-believers. This is ten believers. Okay? Ten believers. And it's supposed to be a parable for us today even. I mean, the kingdom of God, sure. we're in the kingdom of God, but the coming of Jesus is maybe a long way away yet. It's been 2,000 years since they were we talking. We need to be prayed up every day. But we need to be put Five of them were ready. Five of them did what? They had extra oil. So what is the extra oil? We need to buy more oil. Keep more oil on hand. Well, I think that what's, might what's even the extra be oil the, in this the story? Being sanctified holy. Absolutely. It's it's being it's, it's being in the Word, right. being sanctified, being filled with the Spirit. Exactly. Okay? And five of them are just resting on their decision. Yeah. Hey, we got our lamp. So, well, we got saved one we time got our lamp. ten years ago, and that'll carry us through. And, and, and they, don't, they don't necessarily, and when it comes, they're just not prepared. And, and so there's no going out to buy more because the bridegroom came. So, I mean, there's a lot of subtleties. We could spend a long time preaching this, but I really believe they were all saved in the kingdom. But in the end, five don't make it. Right? That's right. Five don't make it. Now, that feels harsh, but it's the truth. I believe that we can be in the kingdom, we can be saved, and we can take it for granted, and we can be unprepared, and we can ultimately find ourselves outside the kingdom exactly. of God when Christ it. comes. I really believe that. <laughs> and that's a sobering, scary thought. I don't know about you, but I want to be ready. Me too. I want to be ready. That's why we're here. That's why we're studying God's Word on a Thursday morning. That's why we're hopefully praying and reading our Bibles every day. That's why we're worshiping every opportunity we get. We want to be ready. So look with me at the closing thought here. Look with me at the closing thought. Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord that this letter be read to all brethren. Okay, so I've done my duty here. I have read to you this letter in the church. We've studied it. Now what we have to do is live it. Okay, I really believe there is something. This is not over. Paul's going to continue to talk about all these themes pretty much in the next letter, 2 Thessalonians. But let it be said right here that this is a call to holiness from the beginning Amen. to the end. Amen. God's scriptures are a call to holiness from the beginning to the end. It's not enough to just believe. We must be holy. That's in Leviticus and in 1 Peter. Be holy even as I am holy, your God. Now, do not compare yourself to any other human being. How do you become holy? By, by yielding yourself to the Holy Spirit of God and comparing yourself to Christ. Exactly. He is our model. He is our Christian example. No one else, I can't compare myself to anyone else, and you shouldn't compare yourself or anyone else to anyone else. We're all on the same journey. We have one God, one Savior, one Lord, and we need to keep prayed up and focused on Him. Um, well, there are great examples for us, okay? There are great examples. There are saints, and uh, the Apostle Paul is a great example for us. And he even says in the next letter, in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to say, uh, pay attention to the traditions I've taught you. And at one point in the Corinthian letter, I think he says, follow me as I follow Christ. So it's okay to keep our eyes on good saints, okay? But ultimately, our trust has to be in obeying Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Okay. That's 1 Thessalonians, guys. We did it. Um, we're going to start 2 Thessalonians next. And it's a much shorter book. It's half the length, but a lot of the same 
some of the same themes in, in a more poignant way, even, you'll see as we go. Let's, let's close in prayer. I ran a little long this morning, so sorry about that. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your time together this morning with your spirit, inhabiting our study as we prayed in the beginning. Open our hearts, open our minds, illumine our eyes that we may understand your gospel teachings. And now be with us as we leave this place to go in the spirit of prayer, in the spirit of thankfulness, always praying, always rejoicing. For you are with us. And we thank you now in Jesus' strong name, our Lord and Savior, who lives with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and unto ages of ages. Well, that's all we have time for today, and I want to thank you again for listening in. I hope that our time together has been a blessing to you. While you're here, why not take a moment to add a comment or perhaps ask a question? You know, Forming the Spirit Within is a listener-supported ministry, and I really appreciate your feedback and your support. If you'd like more information on how to be a part of this ministry, you can find it online at bradreillyministries.org. Again, thanks for listening and spending the time with us today. And may the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you as he forms his spirit within you.